Good morning, friends. Great to see you today. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 10. Uh, we want to continue with the passage that we began last Sunday and carry it a little further. And I believe we will make it through just the second point in your outline today, so we'll save the third for next Lord's Day. Uh, Mark uh, 10. Um, I'm going to begin back in verse 17 because I want to remind you <clears throat> of um, the context and this conversation Jesus has had with this rich young ruler. Uh, we'll actually be in verses 23 through 27 today. But let me uh, uh, read the previous paragraph as well. So Mark 10, beginning in verse 17, hear the word of the Lord. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. God's inerrant and authoritative word. Let's uh, ask for his help as we uh, study these verses today. Father, we do pray for your grace. We do pray for the quickening of your spirit. Help me, Lord, as I preach Today, <clears throat> strengthen my voice, my mind. Father, uh, give us as a congregation ears to hear that you might open our hearts to your word, that we might submit to your word and be receptive to what you're saying through these verses. Uh, we need your help. So we commit ourselves to you now and ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Author and Bible scholar David Garland writes these words. 
Here we go. Wealth is not something neutral, but is toxic to the soul. I realize those are strong words. I wonder how you feel about those and whether you agree with them. Uh, Garland says further, wherever money is at stake, there's danger to life because it is not a neutral or harmless commodity. Wealth possesses high voltage and explosive energy since so many crave it, and it strikes such reverence in the heart. No Christian is immune from the danger of mammon. Covetousness is like a virus that takes residence in the soul and begins slowly to work its destruction. Stronger words yet. But I believe he's correct. Uh, and this is probably why the word of God repeatedly warns us about money. Consider these warnings from the book of 1 Timothy. First in uh, 1 Timothy 6 and 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Because money can have this effect, Hebrews kind of follows up on this verse and says, keep your lives free, keep your lives free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Well, in these verses that we began to study last Sunday, we again hear God's word warn us about wealth and possessions, this time from the lips of Jesus himself. We see this insurmountable obstacle of wealth and possessions presented to us in these verses. And Jesus describes this obstacle to our faith through three statements. There are three statements in these verses that reveal the insurmountable obstacle of wealth. Well, first of all, the first statement that we looked at last Lord's Day was the humanly unthinkable. First, Jesus asked this rich young ruler to, to do the humanly unthinkable. He, he, we saw Jesus summon this wealthy young man to, to sell all his possessions, give to the poor, and join his disciples. What to him? was humanly unthinkable. We saw the urgency of this man as he comes and falls down before Jesus. Tell me, how can I inherit eternal life? Uh, we saw his methodology. There was something he believed he could do, some act he could perform. And then finally, we saw his idolatry exposed by Jesus as Jesus called him to sell everything, give to the poor, and come follow me along with my disciples. Uh, this exposed that while he had kept some of the commandments, he had violated the very first commandment, you shall have no gods before me. This young man had a death grip on his wealth. Uh, 
and laying it all aside was humanly unthinkable. So that was the first statement our passage made about the insurmountable obstacle of wealth that Christ asks us, because our tendency is to worship our wealth, often asks us to do the humanly unthinkable. Well, this brings us to a second statement that we want to look at today. Uh, setting our wealth and possessions aside to follow Jesus, it's not only humanly unthinkable. Jesus reveals that it's humanly impossible. It is humanly impossible. Uh, Jesus tells his men that the salvation of wealthy people is humanly impossible. I want you to take note of three things in these verses. First, I want you to see the difficulty. Jesus tells the twelve how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter God's kingdom. Look down in your Bible at verse 23. And Jesus looked around. Uh, that phrase requires a little explanation. Jesus looked around. He, back in chapter 3, Mark used the same words to describe the way Jesus looked around at the Pharisees. Uh, it referred not only to the way Jesus looked at the Pharisees, but also how he understood their private thoughts about what he was doing. He was healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And in Mark 3, it says, and he looked around at them. There's our phrase. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. So this phrase describes a penetrating look. And Mark's using it in this same sense here in chapter 10. Jesus looked at his disciples, understanding their private thoughts about this rich young man. What, what could they have been thinking? They were probably thinking that it was a shame for Jesus to let this man slip through his fingers. I mean, his wealth could be used to advance the kingdom, or at least to fill up their meager treasury. If ever the twelve had met someone who should join their ranks, they thought this young man was it. And looking around at them, Jesus perceived their unspoken thoughts. <laughs> You're blowing it, Lord. And this is why he says what follows in verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to note the phrase entering the kingdom of God. This is not an introduction of a new topic into this account. It's just a different way of expressing what the whole passage is about. Way back in verse 17, the young man ran up asking how he could inherit eternal life. Uh, in verse 23 and also in 24, Jesus talks about entering the kingdom of God. And then down in verse 26, we'll hear the disciples ask, who can be saved then? All three of these phrases refer to the same thing inheriting eternal life, entering the kingdom of God, and being saved are all references to becoming a Christian, to becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus. And so when Jesus says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, 
He meant that it's difficult for those with wealth to be saved. And it's difficult for them to inherit eternal life. It's a difficult thing for those with financial means to become my disciples and follow me. Their, their wealth is an obstacle to their salvation. Now, I'm not making this up. It's not Rob that's saying it. It's in black and white right before your face. This is what Jesus says, not what I'm saying. So don't shoot the messenger. Quite a remarkable saying, statement. Look at how his men respond to the Lord's pronouncement in verse 24. And, his and the disciples were amazed at these words. They were astounded. They were astonished. You could even say they were stupefied. They were shocked at what Jesus said. Because it was widely held that those with wealth had been blessed by God. In the same way, um, it was widely held that a mother with many children was blessed by God. Uh, being barren, uh, unable to bear children was viewed as, as a blight or a curse. And remember, in uh, in uh, Luke chapter 1, Elizabeth, as she is told that she would bear John the Baptist, she says, you have taken away my reproach. People talked about her behind her back. She must be cursed. And you see this played out, this idea played out throughout the Old Testament scriptures and even here into the New Testament that uh, to have wealth not all the time, but in many cases, was viewed as, as being God's, uh, viewed as being blessed by the Lord. So most people, the disciples included, would have considered this young man blessed, uh, not cursed. And so Jesus' statement just runs across popular opinion, and, and it's shocking to them. It's so shocking that Jesus goes on to repeat himself in verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus calls his men children here, and this is very purposeful. It's to remind them of what he has set up in verse 15. Truly, truly, I say to you, who would, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Salvation is given to those with nothing to contribute. The kingdom of God is given to nobodies, not somebodies. Uh, the kingdom of God is given to people who possess this attitude. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the attitude Christ looks for. Not to those who think they can always and easily get whatever they want. Well, this is the difficulty 
it will be difficult for those with wealth and possessions to find salvation in Christ. But I hate to tell you, Jesus doesn't stop there. As Jesus continues, he takes things even further. Um, he escalates from the difficulty to the impossibility. It's not just difficult for wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible. Again, not Rob's words. These are the words of Jesus. Look at verse 25 with me. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. First, we, we have to describe what the eye of a needle is. One opinion, a very popular opinion, believes that the eye of a needle referred to an ancient gate in the city of Jerusalem. The needle's eye referred to a small door in that bigger gate uh, in the city wall, perhaps something like this. This is a large gate. I don't, this is not in the wall of Jerusalem as far as I know. Um, large gate, obviously, and a smaller door uh, where people could enter uh, so they didn't have to open the whole gate every time someone wanted to enter. Well, the, the view is that, that the eye of a needle refers to a gate like this one. And for a camel to pass through the eye required you to completely remove the camel's load and perhaps even have the camel get down on its knees to go through the door. And only in this way could the camel make it through the smaller door called the eye of a needle. You might have heard that in a sermon before this one. It's now held that this is probably not the case at all. Uh, many scholars have come to reject this view. In fact, one said this tradition has no historical basis and looks like the invention of a wealthy church searching for loopholes. If this is the eye of a needle, then all a rich person needs to do is just be very humble and they're guaranteed entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And he calls this clever exegetical doctoring. Well, so what did Jesus mean when he said the eye of a needle? Well, he meant the eye of an actual needle. You know those things you sew with in the little loop at the top where you put your thread through? Uh, that's what he was talking about. And he referred to a camel because that was the largest land animal in Israel. The same phrase is used in other countries. Uh, they've discovered it in other places and they substitute an elephant in those places instead of a camel. But in either case, this saying refers to something that is clearly impossible. It's called hyperbole and and. It's almost comical. Some have referred to it as a ludicrous impossibility or ridiculous. But look back to the beginning of the verse, uh, of verse 25. It is easier. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle if the easier event is clearly impossible 
then the harder event is even more impossible. If it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, then it's even more impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus' wealth doesn't just make it difficult to enter the kingdom of God. Wealth makes it impossible to enter the kingdom of God. It is an insurmountable obstacle to following Christ. The word impossible is hard to swallow. And you might think that I'm overstating it and that I'm making salvation harder than it should be. But this is not the only place where Jesus says things uh, like this. Consider some of these other places. Uh, he says in Luke 14, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And from our scripture reading just moments ago, we read in Matthew's gospel, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The, the issue, the heart of this, is about where your ultimate loyalty lies. Is your ultimate loyalty to, to God and his son Jesus Christ? Or is your ultimate loyalty to your love of money and your appetite for possessions? Now, I just want to caution you that as Americans, we've been infected. Just know it. As Americans, the way we think and live, we've been infected. Listen to this comment. Jesus does not reject having possessions. Many of his followers did have possessions. Somebody owned the houses in which he retreated with his disciples. We know Peter owned a house. The central issue has to do with one's ultimate loyalty. Not to drive home the need for all of Jesus' followers to sell all their possessions. All must give whatever stands in the way of total commitment to following Jesus. Now, there are several versions of this story. Um, and while many claim it's based in history, I'm not sure that it really is. But it illustrates what we're talking about here. Ivan the Great uh, was the Tsar of Russia during the 15th century. And uh, he, was a, he was a fighting Tsar, uh, courageous and, and conquering, a brilliant general. But he had been so busy waging his campaigns that he had never secured a wife and did not have an heir to the throne. So his uh, advisors, his cabinet, uh, cautioned him and encouraged him to find a wife and raise up an heir. If, if he were to be killed, Russia would descend into chaos. You must find a, a wife. And he 
admitted this was true, but also said that he did not have the time to go searching for a bride. And so his counselors and advisors performed the search for him, uh, traveling through Europe, um, trying to find an appropriate, uh, appropriate candidate to, to become Ivan's wife. And finally, they found uh, someone agreeable to this, uh, the king of Greece agreed to give his daughter, beautiful young woman named Sophia, uh, brilliant, charming. Uh, he offered to give her, his daughter to Ivan in marriage. He was, he was thrilled, the king of Greece was. It would align his kingdom in a very favorable way with uh, the giant Russia was to his north. But the king of Greece told him he must be baptized as a member of the Greek Orthodox Church. He must convert before he can marry my daughter. And Ivan agreed. And so a priest was sent to Moscow where he furiously instructed Ivan in Orthodox Greek doctrine. Ivan was a quick learner, passed through it with flying colors and so uh, arrangements for the wedding took place and the czar made his way to Athens accompanied by 500 elite troops his his personal bodyguard he was to be baptized into the Greek Orthodox Church by immersion as was the church's custom his soldiers ever loyal to Ivan suddenly say that they wanted to be baptized as well and so the patriarch of the Greek church assigned 500 priests to each soldier to give them the quick um, cliff notes version of the catechism. And the soldiers, all 500 of them, were also to be immersed in one mass baptism. And so the day came, and what a sight it was, 500 soldiers in their battle dress with gleaming swords and, and their, um, uh, their ribbons uh, decorating their, their armor. And 500 priests uh, decked head to toe in black robes and their tall black hats. And all this spectacle was about to happen. And suddenly there arose a problem and baffling why they didn't think of this <laughs> sooner they remembered that professional soldiers were not allowed to become members of the Greek Orthodox Church they would have to give up their commitment to bloodshed because they couldn't be both killers and church members at the same time so a hasty conference was called of church leaders, uh, diplomacy and all that, and it was finally resolved. And as the baptismal oath was spoken by the priests and they began to baptize, eat, uh, baptize the soldiers, each man reached to his side, withdrew his sword, lifting it high overhead. Every soldier was then totally immersed everything baptized except his fighting arm and sword. <laughs> you can look it up. The story's called Unbaptized Arms. 
It does sound rather ridiculous in the end, doesn't it? But, as with the rich young ruler, Jesus is pointing out in this shocking statement, no unbaptized arms in my camp. The central issue has to do with where your ultimate loyalty is. And you and I are called to give whatever stands in the way of total commitment to Christ. I mentioned last week that, you know, wealth might not mean anything to you. Uh, to some of you, it's a big deal. Possessions. But as I said last week, it could be your family. Nothing gets in the way of family. And when you utter those words, you are lifting your arm out of the water. Not this. You cannot have this. It could be your family. It could specifically refer to your children. No, 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 no. So, we see not only the difficulty, we also see further and in a more escalated tone, the impossibility for wealthy to enter God's kingdom. It's impossible. Well, there's one more thing I want to point out to you, and thank God it's here, and that is the possibility. What was humanly impossible is possible with God. Look down in your Bible to verse 26. It says, And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Just as Jesus' statement about those with wealth escalated from, from the difficult to the impossible, so his disciples' reaction also escalates from amazement to utter astonishment. They became even more amazed at this last statement from Christ. The word exceeding means beyond measure. It means something that's gone beyond a point, a fixed point on the scale. It's off the charts. It's beyond the ruler. Uh, they were astonished to a very great degree. In common English, we would say they were blown away by this pronouncement. If this young man can't be saved, who gave the appearance of being blessed by God, then Lord, who can be saved? One scholar points out that this question reveals the utter futility of human efforts before God. It seems the twelve had figured out that even they didn't have the power to do what Jesus asked. It seems they became suddenly aware of their own lack and their own inadequacy. If the idols of this man's heart will keep him out of God's kingdom, then won't the idols of our hearts also keep us from following the Lord? That's a good question. Because 
aware of their own shifting allegiances in their own hearts brings them to this point and they cry out, Lord, who, who can be saved? If it requires allegiance like that. Look at verse 27. Jesus looked at them. Another one of those perceptive words. He didn't just turn their direction. He perceived. Uh, he looked at them intently and knowingly and perceived what was in their hearts. And, and so he replies uh, further. Jesus looked at them and said, <coughs> with man, it is impossible. He agreed with them. You're right, man. What I've asked from this rich young man is humanly impossible. His loyalty lies with his riches. There's no way he can give up all those in his own power to follow me. And then even what I've asked of you is humanly impossible to leave everything and become my disciples. Humanly impossible. And I wonder if you've ever come to the point of agreeing with Jesus here. Maybe you're almost to that point. You think following Christ is really hard. Following Jesus really is difficult. And it's wearing you out. You want to give up. I would just encourage you to go a little further. Friend, it's not hard to follow Jesus. It's impossible in your own efforts to, to follow after and be his disciple. Oh, but then look at these gracious words as verse 27 continues. Jesus looked at them and said with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Humanly speaking, it's impossible to repent and believe in Christ. Because like the rich young ruler, our hearts are held captive by wealth and possessions and other things. Whatever it is, we have tightly gripped within our fists. Only God's sovereign grace can make us release the grip we have on our wealth, our possessions, on our own personal peace and prosperity. And the way God loosens our grip is by giving us new hearts and new affections. And the result of that new heart and new affection is that we become drawn to Jesus Christ. And the result is that we have a desire to hear His Word. And the result is that he grants us repentance and faith so that we can put our faith in the, the atoning death of Jesus. And the result is that we want to take up our crosses and follow. Paul describes this new disposition <coughs> in Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That underlined phrase is not two things. 
It is one thing. By the washing of regeneration, even the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit's work when we come to know Christ, before we come to know Christ, where he gives us a new heart to believe, where he gives us new desires and affections. We can't let go of things until God gives us this new heart. And God does it. Impossible with man, but not impossible with God. And then there's Paul's wonderful statement of God's sovereign grace in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Now you know this, so don't fly off on me here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. I have one question for you. What does this refer to? This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This refers to this entire first phrase. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And all of this is the gift of God. Even your faith is God's doing. You're right, men. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. What was humanly impossible is possible with God by the gift of His sovereign grace. So, this is the second statement on this insurmountable obstacle. Last week it was the humanly unthinkable that Christ asked the rich young ruler to do. And this week we see the humanly impossible. It's impossible for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible for those with riches to follow Christ. It's impossible with those uh, with uh, 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 possessions uh, to lay them down and follow unless by his sovereign grace God gives them a new heart to believe. It is otherwise humanly impossible. It is impossible for those whose hearts are held captive by wealth and possessions to inherit God's kingdom. It's not just difficult, it is impossible. So we come for a full circle back around to this quote. Wealth is not something neutral, but is toxic to the soul. And we've seen in these verses, it is true. Uh, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And that means, friend, that today, 
as you sit here, it is impossible for you to follow Jesus Christ under your own steam. Uh, whether, uh, whether you're here as a believer or you're not yet a believer, uh, if you're not yet a believer, you cannot let go of the stuff that your heart has attached itself to unless God gives you a new heart. And you that know Christ as your Savior and Lord and would call yourself a follower of Jesus, perhaps this morning you need to renew your loyalty. You have drifted off as many of the people Paul writes about through the New Testament, drifted away. Uh, Demas, who has loved this present world, has abandoned me. He talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It is possible to be led astray by the grip on your wealth and possessions. Do you need to renew your pledge of loyalty to Christ? Let me close us in prayer today. <clears throat> we live in the United States, Heavenly Father. We have wealth beyond our, our dreams. We can purchase anything we want practically. We can have it dropped at our front doorstep this afternoon if we so desire. We can leave here and choose to eat just about any kind of food we want to. So, as the, even though we don't think of ourselves as wealthy in America, we are. We know that because of our culture, uh, the culture we live in, our hearts have become infected to some degree. And Christ, I pray that you would reveal that to us this morning, the degree to which we've been infected that we would renew our loyalty to you, Christ Jesus, that you would reign uncontested in our hearts, that we would be willing to do whatever it takes to follow your call. Please, we cannot do this by ourselves. We cannot come up with it. You must perform this in us by your Spirit. So strengthen our hearts Strengthen our resolve to leave all to follow you, Lord Jesus. Please do this uh, in us, we ask in your name. Amen.